You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist and a volunteer for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Uh, And I want to thank all of you who are listening for joining us for this first episode. Today we're joined by Dr. Naveen Pemaraju, who is an associate professor in the Department of Leukemia at the MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. Thanks for joining us, Naveen. Thanks, Ken, for having me. So I want to talk today with you in detail about BPDCN, but before we even get to that, I just want to ask you, this is a very rare disease. How did you get interested? Well, Ken, thank you so much. Uh, What a great question. As with any rare diseases, I've found that there's often a story of passion behind them, and and that's certainly the case for me. For me, there was a young patient that I was taking care of, an 18-year-old high school student who was a football player, academic scholar, and was unfortunately found to have a chest mass and and ultimately found to have blastic plasmacytoidinuric cell neoplasm, or BPDCN. This was right around the time I was finishing my fellowship, about to start faculty, and patients, uh, including this young patient, eventually succumbed to this rare aggressive disease. And with no available therapies, no approved therapies, I thought to myself, this is something I want to dedicate my life to figure out how to make outcomes better for patients uh, with BPDCN. Thank you for sharing it because I was thinking to myself, again, there has to be a reason. And it's going to be interesting to sort of trace the progress that you've made and, and your field has made in treating this. So let's start right out. What is blastic plasmacytoid dendritic cell neoplasm? Well, Ken, uh, what an unwieldy name uh, for, for this disease. Basically, the story on the name is that uh, 30 years ago, pathologists and doctors didn't know what to call it. So this is a disease that combines elements of leukemia, blood cancers, lymphoma, and skin or dermatological conditions all in one. The names changed a half a dozen times. It used to be called NK cell, blastic cell, lymphoma, etc. Now, what happened in 2008, the WHO, World Health Organization, solidified this name very nicely on the basis of finally having a way to diagnose it. And that gave this name blastic, which means immature or young cells, plasma, cytoidendric cell, PDC, the type of cell or, or the cancer cell that this resembles, and neoplasm, of course, meaning cancer. They originally placed it under acute myeloid leukemia, AML, and related family neoplasms, and then ultimately now BPDCN has its own category under these so-called myeloid diseases or myeloid leukemia. So that kind of gives a flavor of, of where this cancer fits in the, in the overall spectrum. So actually, let me go back to the name for a second because it is a very long name. What is the cell of origin? What's the lineage? Right, and this eluded us for quite some time. Only recently, around this 2008 time, it's become clear that the pathogenic or malignant or cancer cell is either this PDC, this plasma cytoidendritic cell, so an immune blood cell, or some malignant version of that. And so it kind of comes under the lineage of bone marrow cells, white blood cells, myeloid cells, and it fits in that spectrum. But I want to emphasize for our listeners It appears that it may be a slightly different cell than any of the other cancers out there, so different from your leukemias, different from lymphomas, and so it's its own entity based on this finding. 
What do dendritic cells do? Because, you know, candidly, we don't, we as oncologists don't talk about them that often. No, we don't. Right on. Yeah. So dendritic cells are what I like to describe as sort of guardians uh, of the immune and blood system. I've given a sports analogy uh, in past talks, which is on a football team, you have a free safety, which is the player who's roaming around in the backfield to try to make a last ditch effort at a play. But our immune system is this brilliant set of checks and balances and the dendritic cell appears to be one of these cells that travels back and forth bone marrow blood and skin and it's supposed to be protecting those environments and so obviously a cancer of this cell or of a lineage or kid child version of the cell would involve those elements the blood the lymph nodes and the skin all right so along those lines keeping that in mind i mean one of the things i found interesting in reading about this it sounds like it can present in one place first and not the others, and that can be misleading in terms of the diagnosis. Is that, is that a fair assessment? Ken, that's exactly right on. Uh, from the clinical experience, what me and the team have gained is exactly what you said. For example, because it's such a historically rare disease, doctors and patients have confused this disease with other more common diseases. For example, older patient who comes in with the skin uh, lesion or disorder and maybe has bone marrow abnormalities may be di diagnosed as the more common AML, acute myeloid leukemia with leukemia cutis or skin involvement. Another presentation could be confusing this with cutaneous T-cell lymphoma or even yet another confusing feature could be thinking that this is a, a simple infection or an allergic reaction and so it kind of emphasizes for you and me as physicians that biopsy, tissue is the issue and so when in doubt try to get tissue if it's feasible and possible to nail down a diagnosis, whether it's common or rare. All right, so what would be a typical, maybe there's not a typical presentation, but what would be a common presentation for patients clinically? And then let's move on really talking about those same patients with how would you confirm a diagnosis? What, what do you consider to be enough data to say, yes, this is what the patient has? Great, right. So the basics of diagnosis and who presents. So historically, it's been thought of as a disease of older males, interestingly. So a five to one ratio male to female, probably various reasons for that, including genetic acquisitions. Usually older, most adult series, 68 to 72 years of age, although there is a pediatric uh, form of this disease, which is even more rare. Of course, now in the referral experience, we're seeing patients of all ages and, and male and female. Where it presents, as you were alluding to earlier, it can present most commonly in the skin, followed by the bone marrow, followed by the lymph nodes, and then all throughout the body, anywhere else in the body. That's called extramedullary presentation. So that's kind of the historical way it's presented. How do you diagnose? Well, it's challenging even at expert centers like mine at MD Anderson. The key to diagnosis is two things. One, expert pathology, pathologists who are familiar with derm pathology, heme pathology, who can do the advanced studies, and two, a mnemonic that I like to try to remind people is think one, two, three, four, five, six. That's CD123, which is the key feature of this diagnosis, plus CD4 and CD56. Those are protein or markers on the tumor cells. Each one by themselves is not diagnostic, but the triad together with the addition of other markers such as TCL1 helps the pathologist nail down this diagnosis in either the skin or the blood or the bone marrow. All right, so you have a clinical presentation, you've got flow cytometry, or basically you've got the CD123456, which is, I think, actually going to make it easier to remember. Any other diagnostic tools that you use, FISH, uh, cytogenetics, uh, immunohistochemistry, what, what are the things that, that you sort of you look at and you, you say, aha, 
Yeah, excellent question. So in BPDCN, and I'll contrast it with AML, its closest kind of clinical analog, there's no recurrent cytogenetic chromosomal marker, as you might see in some of the other diseases. There are some groups, including mine, that have shown MYC, MYC translocation, so a fish panel may be helpful. In terms of molecular mutations, we and others have made some breakthroughs. There are common molecular mutations that center around the common ones seen in the myeloid malignancies, such as CMML, MDS, and AML, and those are TET2 mutation, which we found to be by far the most common of interest, followed by ASXL1, TP53, RAS mutations, et cetera. So they track with the CMML, MDS, AML. Second point that you might find interesting is that we found that up to 20%, one out of five patients with BPDCN may have a concomitant or prior MDS or CMML, and then we know a lot of these patients can transform into AML. So there appears to be some sort of a family or spectrum uh, that BPDCN lies in, and that's helped us to diagnose and treat patients. I'm really glad you brought that up. What I have read about is that exactly what you said, which is that CMML and myelodysplasia can be seen at a higher frequency in patients with BPDCN. Right. So here's my, here's the question: Are they is there sharing of a stem cell, uh, or are these just coexistent, or how how do these diseases interact with each other? Can you ah, say, say a little bit a- more? Yeah, what a great question, Ken. This is really hitting at the crux of the research, I think, in the next five years in this field. A couple of different theories. One is exactly as you postulated. Possibly, yes, these are all, it's all one stem cell, one mother cell that's defective and then leading to uh, certain elements of the spectrum. So MDS, CMML, BPDCN, that's one theory. Another plausible theory is, as you said, that you have two related entities that exist in the same space but may or may not be related. An analog to that is there's systemic mastocytosis with antecedent hematologic or other hematologic disease. So I think that in the next five to 10 years, and, and we are excited to try to flesh that out for our patients, is maybe classifying BPDCN alone, de novo, therapy-related, secondary-related, with concomitant other hematologic, just like we've done in AML, MDS, and, and mastocytosis. Right, and actually, I get a sense that that may help in terms of making therapy better uh, if you have sort of uh, subdivisions of this rare disease. Right on. What we're finding out in the oncology and heme community very rapidly, as, as any of our listeners will appreciate in the last few weeks, months, and years, with all of the drug development and, and FDA approvals, is we're starting to understand how to parse down subgroups within subgroups. And yes, some of these may be rare cancers and rare diseases, maybe only a few hundred, a few thousand affected. But once we find a breakthrough and possibly a therapy program, it really does open up a whole new realm of possibility. And then maybe those can be extrapolated to other patients and other diseases after that. Naveen, by the way, one of the things you've said to me that I I really appreciate is I think the saying was, if you are the patient with a rare disease, it's not rare. That's right, Ken. Uh, What we found is that people when they look up on Google or the internet or talk to their doctor and the doctor has not even heard of the disease or can't pronounce it as as in BPDCN, it's very disheartening for the patient and their loved one. And and I'm here to say, not just me, but all over the world, there are researchers who are dedicating themselves to diseases that may only affect a few dozen or a few hundred people. And I have a couple things to say about it. One is that rare diseases aren't as rare as we think, Ken. When you have a drug development program and you have a approved therapy or two, all of a sudden you see more patients diagnosed. It's not because the incidence is increasing, it's because the awareness is there. Two, 
pathology and technology changes quickly over time. This CD123 testing that we were talking about was not standard 10, 15, 20 years ago, and now it is. And then finally, I think that di rare diagnoses may be missed and confused uh, for other more common diagnoses, and so we capture that. So I'm reminded of Kevin Costner in Field of Dreams, which is if you build it, they will come. And so that's what we want to do for every patient out there to give them hope no matter how rare a disease is. Yeah, and you know what, it's a nice opportunity to say, I mean, that's really the mission of LLS as well. Um, so, and, and I, I think a reason why a lot of us are very proud, very proud to be associated with LLS. I totally agree, totally agree. LLS, among other organizations, has really led the way to shed light on rare and common leukemias for patients and has provided resources for folks to be able to call in, website to be able to have links to for clinical trials and other updates. So it's a great resource. So let me ask about the patient's journey a little bit because we'll get into treatment in a couple minutes, but you know, we're gonna talk about chemotherapy and stem cell transplant and everything else, but what, um, what, what are some of your observations about the challenges that patients face going through treatment for this illness? Well, historically, there's been quite a few barriers, actually. The biggest barriers we talked about is just getting a diagnosis, just nailing down this rare entity, calling it what it is, and getting that. Once you get a diagnosis, a lot of confusion ensues for many people. Because there's no approved therapies, there's very few clinical trials, historically, groups around the world have borrowed from three different paradigms, either acute lymphoid leukemia, ALL therapy, AML therapy, or lymphoma therapy. These are all multi-agent chemotherapies, quite difficult for our older patients, 70 and above. And then if you tolerate that, go into remission, go for a stem cell transplant. So the barriers are many. In a disease where the majority of patients are in fact older and unfit, 70 and older, not great in terms of their performance status, which means they have other diseases and other comorbidities, that's the real world population. And so intensive chemotherapy and transplant may not even be a possibility for the vast majority of our patients. So that's another barrier. And then finally, traveling to or finding a site that has expertise may not be the easiest thing, particularly for patients who live further away from major academic centers. Yeah, good, good point. I know that you've done some incredible research and, and really have helped bring some of the newer treatments to bear. But let me, uh, let's, let's go back to what you were talking about in terms of chemotherapy. Prior to some of the new research we're going to talk about in about a minute, what was your group using? What were you using? Which approach? The AML-like approach? The ALL approach? The lymphoma approach? What was your strategy? Yeah, so, you know, this has been a tough thing in the field. The majority of us around the world, Europe and here in particular in the U.S., has been an ALL, acute lymphoblastic leukemia type approach. So that is intensive chemotherapy, multi-agent in the hospital chemotherapy, multiple cycles, up to eight cycles, uh, with some kind of central nervous system directed therapy, whether that's lumbar punctures as we do or, or radiation and then going to a stem cell transplant in the first remission. Other groups sometimes do use an AML-style uh, approach, again, similar induction chemotherapy in the hospital. And then some groups in the older unfit patient will use lymphoma-based therapy, uh, although that is not as intensive a as these other two. So suboptimal, imperfect ways of treating uh, an aggressive disease, borrowing from the other acute leukemias that it resembles. Is stem cell transplant curative? It can be. It can be. Our colleagues in Europe, Japan, and, and here in the United States have shown that. So 
what oncologists refer to as a tail on the curve, if some of our listeners have heard that, that refers to a Kaplan-Meier curve, which estimates survival life expectancy. And if you look at several of our BPDCN studies worldwide, you will see that. And what that means in plain English is this. If you can get some intensive regimen, tolerate it, go into remission, and go for a stem cell transplant, there is a minority, a good group of those patients who can live past, say, three years, five years, which is where most of the follow-up is, suggesting that, yes, indeed, stem cell transplant can, in fact, be curative for a small subgroup of our patients. All right. Some of the things I want to talk about that I think are incredibly exciting, you, you and your group have worked on, among others as well. What has been the, the big breakthrough or the big breakthroughs that, are, that you want everyone here to, to hear about? Right, Ken. So there's two big ones to, to discuss with our group. So one is the major breakthrough was the finding that CD123, also known as the IL-3 receptor alpha, which is a target on uh, leukemia stem cells or tumor cells, is present in 100% of patients with BPDCN. It is found in a lot of other tumors, including the vast majority of AML, but over 100% and it's overexpressed. So that's a, a big breakthrough to help in diagnosis, as we mentioned, but also possibly opening the door for therapies. And, and the second item is, in fact, can we develop a targeted therapy for this? And I've been fortunate to be part of a large uh, network of researchers in this, in this rare tumor area. And what happened was, is about four and a half years ago, we worked together as a group, a consortium, to do a pilot study. And we published this in Blood in, in 2014. Seven out of nine patients, Ken, they had a major response with only one cycle of a drug that targeted CD123. It was known as DTIL3, diphtheria toxin IL3. And that formed the basis of this current ongoing phase one, phase two clinical trial. So that is an amazing story. Seven out of nine, often we do phase one or phase two, and you know, you get a 15, 20% response. Right. Well, that must have been, uh, been very exciting in use. It was. It was, uh, you know, just taking off my investigator cap for a moment and, and just, you know, regaining my humanity, seeing the responses in clinic was more than exhilarating. You had older patients who had had multiple prior therapies with really debilitating disease, massive skin lesions, uh, which as we mentioned, BPDCN most commonly affects the skin, but also these are patients with bone marrow disease and, and some of which had lymph node involvement. Some of these patients were, were quite in a difficult spot, I would say. And after we gave one cycle of this therapy, then known DTIL3, later known as SL401, uh, you had some remarkable responses. However, at that time, we only had enough available supply for, for one cycle. And so the question came, if we were able to have a large-scale trial with multiple cycles, would patients have further benefit? So what happened next? Ah, so what happened next is over the last four and a half years, we had our wish granted. So we had a sponsor, and so the drug was renamed SL401. And this drug, again, it's a diphtheria toxin uh, that's fused to human recombinant IL-3. So it's a smart drug or a targeted drug, uh, bio uh, chemo drug. And so what we did is we set out to do this trial. Phase one, again, just to prove formally that the drug is safe. And then it went quickly into the phase two after the drug dose was identified at 12 microgram per kilogram IV per day. That phase two trial has now completed stage one, two, and three stages two and three being for efficacy. And I'm um, able to report to you, I just presented publicly at the ASH annual meeting a week ago, that this primary endpoint for efficacy and response has been met, uh, which means that the pre-specified statistical endpoint has been met. 
And what we found, Ken, is in the frontline setting, you have a 90, 90% overall response rate. In the relapse refractory setting, also very encouraging, 60 plus percent. And in the frontline setting, over half of the patients were able to be bridged to a stem cell transplant, and the median age was 70 years old, so possibly an older group of patients that benefited. And so on the basis of this, the drug is being really uh, looked at as a possible not only relapse refractory setting, but also as a de facto frontline treatment uh, to offer patients in the clinic on clinical trial. Any chance of using this drug and not going to transplant? Great question. So I just showed at the ASH meeting uh, that the median follow-up time is now close to two years, so at 23 months, and the median overall survival is not yet reached. Now that includes patients who went for transplant and who didn't go to transplant. So it's safe to say at this time we don't know the answer. We don't know uh, because we don't have long enough follow-up. Obviously, these are still a small group of patients. And so the recommendation still from me and others is no matter what treatment you get, clinical trial therapy or chemotherapy, if you're fit enough to include stem cell transplant as part of your regimen, I'm still recommending that, especially for patients in the frontline setting as well. Uh, Side effects? Side effects are important to discuss with any new chemotherapy agent, any new agent, because in that setting, one has to appreciate if there's anything unexpected. So there's a couple I want to bring up about the SO401. In the setting of this 90% overall response rate frontline patients, we did experience something called the capillary leak syndrome, CLS, relatively new to some of our listeners. It seems to be something that can be a part of a class of these so-called immunotoxins where you use an immune agent or you use a microbiological agent. So there are other drugs such as Denleukin Diffitox for cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, Moxitumumab just approved for hairy cell leukemia relapse refractory. Anyway, so for this drug, capillary leak syndrome was observed. This happened at all grades, so that means at the lower grades, but even at the higher grades, including even death from the capillary leak syndrome in the induction or, or the first month of therapy. Now it's a median age of 70. This is an aggressive disease, BPDCN but we wanna make sure that people are aware of that and there are things that you can monitor and adjust. For example, we saw that if your albumin is too low, the major protein, that can track with capillary leak syndrome. So part of the clinical trial included monitoring patients daily while they were getting the infusions for albumin, replacing the albumin as indicated, and then watching the fluid status, kidney status of patients. So that's built into the study. The second uh, part of it was that we did see transient decreases in platelet count and transient increases in the liver tests, mostly in the first cycle, mostly not cumulative, mostly well-managed. And so these are some of the side effects that have come out here. Most importantly, Ken, we did not see a large amount of patients with infections. We did not see a large amount of patients with neutropenia, decrease the white count. And that was pretty surprising given the historical experience with chemotherapy and given the target of CD123. So I also want to ask you about venetoclax. Why might it have been tested, and what are the studies showing on that? Excellent. I'm very uh, happy to report to you that beyond CD123, my group and I have also been looking for our patients for other targets and and other uh, items to address. So one nice finding in the field has been that BCL2 is overexpressed in both AML, so myeloid, as well as lymphoid cells, and the drug venetoclax is actually FDA-approved for CLL, a lymphoid drug, lymphoid disease, and now actually AML, which is a myeloid disease. But in BPDCN in particular, with my colleague, Dr. Andy Lane at Dana-Farber, we published a seminal paper in Cancer Discovery showing that BCL2 is overexpressed in BPDCN and maybe even higher than in AML. 
We further tested two patients with the venetoclax single agent, older patients, relapse refractory, and they had responses. And so based on these encouraging results, we are now opening at our two centers, Dana-Farber and MD Anderson, a phase one study of venetoclax for patients with VPDCN. And we think hopefully this represents a second new area, so outside of CD123, BCL2 targeting for targeted precision therapy. Yeah, it reminds me of the CLL story that you know, taking these wonderful new drugs, these targeted drugs, and actually combining them and, and hopefully getting some deeper remissions. Uh, might you see that in uh, BPDCN? What a brilliant question, Ken. You're, you're already five to ten years ahead of, ahead of the field. Exactly right. So I really appreciate your insights because, yes, that's exactly where we're headed. So now that we have single-agent experience with the CD123 agent, SL401, there will be other 123 agents in the next few years uh, to, to test. Then let's get single-agent activity of the BCL2 inhibitor in patients with BPDCN. And then, as you said, we do actually have uh, preclinical synergy and rationale that suggests that what you said is correct, that combining these two, for example, uh, in the next clinical trials in the next five to ten years may be of some benefit, which is what we're hypothesizing for our patients. Great idea. Very exciting. Well, I have one more question and one, actually one more comment and, and then we're going to wrap up. But I was really fascinated by some of your Twitter research. Ah, yes. Uh, so, which is, which is unusual and interesting. <laughs> what have you learned about the role of Twitter for people, for patients who have uh, rare diseases? Thanks for asking, Ken. It actually dovetails nicely into my interest. You're right. So the passion and interest here is how do I get the message out to the people who need it most in these rare disease fields? So, for example, like BPDCN. This may not be breaking news to anyone, but basically I found out that the only people reading my articles and review articles are other academics and scholars in the field. So you're, you're already reaching a, a pretty known entity there. So Google searches and word of mouth are suboptimal sources, it sounds like, for many of our patients with rare cancers. And so what they've been doing is turning to social media to see what are the latest thoughts, debates, and discussions. And, and you're right, this is where I ended up. So I have about 5,000 followers myself on Twitter. I try to tweet about topics of interest to my patients in these rare disease fields. And with my groups around the world, we've published several papers now as we've established a disease communities. In BPDCN, we established hashtag BPDCN. It's just an organic grassroots hashtag. Only investigators and other people interested in the disease use it. But the goal here is this. If you have a rare disease, it's not rare to you, it's not rare to your sister, it's not rare to your brother, it's not rare to your kids, it's a disease. It's something you have to face. And I have found that people understand that when there are folks like me and others that are on Twitter talking about it, it gives hope, it gives options, and it may give opportunities to be able to find where are the active clinical trials and research going on. So that's what social media and Twitter means for me, and I hope that's what it means for our patients and caregivers. And by the way, thanks for using the word hope because I, I listened to you today and I said, for, for this rare disease, it really is, there's a lot of hope. So that's, mm, it's thank you. What can you tell us about the skin rash? Because I know it, it uh, is one of the key features. Thanks, Ken, for asking about the skin rash. This is one of the key features. And especially for most of us in internal medicine, hematology, oncology, we're not really used to dealing with them or describing them. One unusual item I've found in the clinic is that the majority, not all patients, but the majority of patients with BPDCN at some point in their course present with a purplish colored rash. It's very distinct, haven't seen it too many other times in all of oncology. 
not to say that the color itself means anything, but sometimes people have this distinct hue. But importantly, the rash can be a harbinger. So one thing I've noticed is that people say, oh, I only it's skin-only disease with BPDCN. Actually, in my ASH abstract that we updated this year, we found that whether you have skin-only or skin with bone marrow, bone marrow-only, unfortunately, historically, our patients have done very poorly, suggesting that even if it's only manifesting in the skin at that time, bone marrow is negative, we still should think of this as an aggressive disease, as a bone marrow disease, as a stem cell disease. Further proving that point, uh, me and other colleagues have shown that patients, even in a negative bone marrow, so patients with skin-only BPDCN can still have cytogenetic and molecular abnormalities still seen anyway on, on their sampling, suggesting, again, that what you're dealing with is a stem cell disease, not just a surface or skin disease. Great. Thank you. For additional Leukemia and Lymphoma Society resources on BPDCN, be sure to check out our fact sheets for healthcare professionals by visiting www.lls.org CE. And there you'll also find links to all of our other continuing education programs. Also, for any questions or to refer a patient or yourself, please contact our Information Resource Center and or contact our Clinical Trial Support Center. The number is 800 955 4572. Again, 800-955-4572. Nurses who are information specialists are available to provide personalized one-on-one support to help patients learn about this rare disease and other blood diseases, treatments, financial, and other support resources. So I have to say this has been a fascinating discussion about a disease that I, like a lot of oncologists, really have not known a lot about. So I want to thank Dr. Naveen Pemaraju for joining us for this podcast. He is an associate professor in the Department of Leukemia at the MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. Naveen, thanks again. Ken, thanks for having me on, and thanks to the LLS for all that you guys do. Besides thanking Dr. Pemaraju, I also want to thank our listeners for listening and for participating. This is the first in a new series of podcasts called Treating Blood Cancers, LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist, also very pleased to be an LLS volunteer. And uh, we hope that you uh, join us for the next podcast and for uh, each podcast in the series. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.